This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. It's our fifth anniversary, five years online for this internet radio program. So our tradition is to play excerpts and outtakes from the audience's favorite programs of the past season. We'll have the best from our coverage of politics in Venezuela, Brazil, and Argentina, plus a short exploration of Centuria and more. But first, Jim Singer is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. The president of Brazil, Michel Temer, defended how he gained the presidency this week before the United Nations. Temer used the traditional address by presidents before the U.N. General Assembly to say the impeachment and removal of former President Dilma Rousseff was completely constitutional. Brazil has just gone through a long and complex process, which ultimately led to an impeachment. Everything took place, I must stress, and unfolded fully in line with the most absolute respect to the constitutional order. The fact that we gave the world an exa- or that example is a clear-cut token of the fact that there can be no democracy without the rule of law. Although they are from different parties, Temer had served as Rousseff's vice president before he became president. Rousseff has called Temer a traitor, someone who helped engineer her removal for political reasons. Temer and members of his party, the Brazilian Democratic Movement Party, are under investigation, accused of using illegal campaign donations and fraud. We'll have more on Brazil coming up a bit later. Electoral authorities in Venezuela dashed the hopes of opposition groups this week. They ruled no recall election could be held against President Nicolas Maduro until next year. If that's the case, even if Maduro is removed from office, his vice president and members of his socialist party will remain to rule the country. The opposition was attempting to get a recall for this year, so new elections could be called. Electoral authorities also changed the rules for a recall, making it even tougher for the opposition. To take the next step to remove the president, the opposition must gather four million signatures during three days in October. Venezuelans want to recall Maduro because the country suffers from food shortages and hyperinflation. The Internet is coming to Cuba in a big way. Cubans already have the net, but finding it is often difficult, plus it's expensive and slow, often only available at dial-up speeds. Cuba's government announced this week they will install Wi-Fi all along the Malikan, the historic seaside walkway so popular with tourists and Cubans alike. The walkway is five miles long and runs between downtown Havana and the Gulf of Mexico. The government promises internet all along the tourist route and at higher speeds. Currently, only about 5% of Cubans have access to the internet. The Paralympics ended in Rio this week, and after almost two weeks of games for those with disabilities, organizers gave a special tribute at the closing ceremonies to an athlete who died during the games. Bachman Golbernezhad was killed during a cycling race. He competed for Iran. He had lost one of his legs to a mine in the Iraq-Iran War in the 1980s, but he went on to compete in many international competitions as a medal-winning weightlifter. He switched to cycling a decade ago due to injuries. He was 48 years old. 
He was the first athlete to die at the Paralympics or Olympics in 46 years. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jim Singer. Thanks, Jim. And now our shout out to our listeners in Mexico. Our listening group in Mexico is our second largest all time, only surpassed by our listeners in the United States. So we say mil gracias to all of our listeners in Mexico and elsewhere around the globe. And now on to our anniversary program filled with listener favorites, outtakes, and excerpts from the past year of programs. We start with a very popular program from January, our annual forecast of trends in Latin America. This year, Eric Hirschberg provided the forecast. He's the director of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, where this program got its start five years ago. Here's Hirschberg giving us his analysis of the political crisis in Venezuela via Skype from Washington, D.C. It's not clear to me that the government has the will, but also, I mean, in fact, I'm quite clear they don't have the will, but even if they develop the will to engage in some kind of collaborative process um, in the Congress um, and to make possible compromises around um, economic policies, compromises around um, the autonomy of political institutions and so on, even if they have, if they develop the inclination to do so, it's not clear to me that they have the capability to do it. Um, there are clearly sharp divisions within Chavismo itself, um, and um, any leader who tries to pursue a conciliatory strategy may well face um, attacks um, from other parts of the party apparatus. It's very clear that um, the overwhelming majority of Venezuelans understand that the current government um, is toxic, um, but it's not clear that there is a majority around some kind of an alternative, um, either in terms of an alternative um, political coalition or an alternative set of policies that such an eventual coalition might pursue. Um, so, you know, I think that's one big unknown. And in turn, the opposition um, has never shown itself to be um, responsible, um, never shown itself frankly, to be fully committed to democratic politics either. We also heard from David Smildy of Tulane University about legislative elections in Venezuela, elections where Venezuela's opposition dominated and took control of the National Assembly. Smildy spoke on a long-distance conference call to reporters organized through the Washington office on Latin America. He spoke from Caracas, the capital of Venezuela. Here's an outtake with Smildy giving reasons why the administration of President Nicolás Maduro should not use the courts to counter the new assembly, a tactic that Venezuela's government has indeed followed this year. You know, as far as the Supreme Court, of course, the government still controls the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is really, just like it is in, in most democracies, is the final authority on things. And, you know, the constitutional chamber of the Supreme Court can basically declare any any law, any piece of legislation is unconstitutional. And so that's a huge sort of nuclear option for the government that they could use. Now, I think, you know, this result, you know, this is, this is a, a huge sort of stinging rebuke of, of, uh, of Chavismo, the Maduro government. And to turn around then and start doing really uh, undemocratic things with the Supreme Court, I think 
you know, I'm not I'm not so sure how much of an appetite there is in Chavismo to do this. And I, I tend to think that nationally and internationally, there's not going to be near as much tolerance as there has been in the past. I mean, I think for a lot of for a lot of people and for um, you know regional actors, there's been quite a bit of tolerance in the past for some undemocratic moves uh, that that uh, that Chavismo has made, that the Chavez government and the Maduro government have made. You know, such, for, such as shutting down RFTV, uh and and a number of other measures. Um, but that's because they've so consistently received support at the polls. Now they've very very clearly. Uh, received a rebuke at the polls, and so to turn to follow this with some uh, undemocratic moves using the Supreme Court, I think is is we're going to find a very different playing field in the region uh, with this, and uh, you know it could really affect you know, their popularity. I mean, Venezuelans themselves tend to be, you know, not not all that don't pay that close of attention to issues of, of you know. Checks and balances, and transparency, and, and you know institutional autonomy, but they know one thing, and they know they know that democracy is about voting, and they're very they're very uh, uh, you know they have a very deep deep felt value uh, uh, regarding voting, and so to have a government follow a vote by doing some really undemocratic things, I think um, you know uh, uh, would be really difficult for this government. You know, it's, it's really kind of a new playing field because Chavismo has never lost an election like this before. And so I, I think, you know, that could diminish their appetite for really using nuclear options like the Supreme Court, and it certainly will reduce uh, the tolerance for it in the region. Another popular theme with our audience, the Petrobras corruption case and how it spawned an impeachment movement against Dilma Rousseff, who was eventually expelled from the presidency by Brazil's Congress for charges that had nothing to do with corruption. Rather, she was removed for misleading Congress on the economic conditions of the country and not seeking congressional approval for shifting federal funds. Here's Eric Hirschberg again from our forecast program, this time on Brazil. At the same time, as you mentioned, Rick, there's the discussion of impeachment, both of the president, um, uh, but not only of the president, of of, um, congressional representatives as well. my sense is, though this is still a rapidly evolving situation, my sense is that various actors have incentives not to go down this road. Um, and my sense as well is that the grounds for impeaching Rousseff are tenuous at best. But it is the case that she is languishing with around 10% approval rates. Um, she has a, a hostile Congress, um, a very fractured Congress. And it would be foolish to venture any firm predictions as to what's going to go on um, in, in, in the political leadership. Um, I think further, we're going to see continued revelations about the various corruption scandals that are, that are uh, filling the news and that are, that are occupying um, public debate. Um, these are going to unfold over a protracted period of time. Um, this will... Um, fuel further um, um, discontent, um, further political disillusion. And now Matthew Taylor of American University adds his political analysis of the crisis in Brazil from March. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. The irony here is that the impeachment request that's currently being deliberated in in the lower house of Congress uh, is premised on 
fiscal maneuvers that are illegal, um, that uh, you know are are not permitted under the fiscal responsibility law of two thousand. Uh, but that are widespread and that have these are m maneuvers that we have seen by past governments uh, and no past government has ever been held accountable. Uh, of course, the scale of the of the fiscal readjustments that were undertaken by the Rousseff government were also much greater than those of previous governments. But uh, even though the impeachment request does speak about corruption in the margins, uh, it is largely premised, uh, and, and in fact, legally, it's entirely premised on the fiscal, uh, so-called um, pedaladas, the so-called fiscal maneuvers that have been undertaken by the government. There is a new impeachment request uh, that was filed this week by the Brazilian Bar Association, and the, it is also uh, largely premised on uh, these fiscal maneuvers and even though it does introduce a bit more of the, the corruption angle. Uh, having said all that, I think that, that um, the, as, we, as we know, impeachment in any country is a largely political rather than a legal phenomenon. It's a, it's a process that depends on political support, and Rousseff's approvals, approval rating is, is very, very low by any historical standard. The, the second thing that I think is very important to note that's happened since we last spoke is that um, evidence emerged of payments by the Odebrecht construction firm to more than 200 federal politicians. And um, this really throws a lot of sand in the gears uh, of, uh, of the process, uh, of all of the four processes that I, I discussed. Um, it, it is, you know, if true, uh, the, the allegations that more than 200 federal politicians received bribes from Odebrecht, one major construction firm, but only one of the, the five major firms that are implicated in the Petrobras scandal, uh, I think that this is very significant um, across the board. And uh, so as we think about the, the process uh, that's un ongoing in the Lava Jato investigation, uh, it's important not to let impeachment and the impeachment proceedings overshadow the fact that this is the largest anti-corruption investigation in the history of Brazilian democracy. Uh, and I think it has a long way to go before it ends. Earlier this summer, we spoke to Taylor again about how Eduardo Cunha the president of the Chamber of Deputies in Brazil, and Rousseff had both destroyed each other in this political war. Brazil's Congress recently removed Cunha from office. Here's an outtake from our recent summer interview on Brazilian politics with Taylor on Rousseff, Cunha, and Brazil's current president, Michel Temer. I'm struck by one of the ironies from the impeachment process, and some were saying that as much as 60% of Brazil's Congress uh, had some problem with corruption, and yet they were the ones that were voting to remove a president. Um, the corruption seems to be tarring uh, many of the of the leaders and parties in Brazil. Uh, how does Brazil work out beyond this corruption, or are, are these investigations and prosecutions the the best way for them to deal with? 
this problem? Well, I think I think you may have put your finger on it. Um, I I'm very skeptical about Temer and his coalition's ability to undertake the kind of political reform that would be necessary to curb corruption in the party system or in the legislature. Uh, we've also seen some pushback against anti-corruption reforms from within the Temer administration. And, you know, I think um, nobody would be surprised if I said that the Temer coalition is very much a throwback to the sort of dirty center of Brazilian politics. Uh, so these are not uh, legislators who are likely to push for clean and open government uh, in any significant way. Uh, that being said, they're under considerable public pressure, and I think that that will contribute, for example, uh, this month to the removal of Eduardo Cunha, the scandal-ridden uh, president, uh, former president of the Chamber of Deputies, who was, of course, the person who brought the impeachment charges against uh, or, or brought them to the floor uh, against Dilma Rousseff. Um, and prosecutors in Brazil are a largely independent force, and therefore these investigations are likely to keep up for a long time. But this is not by any means a foregone conclusion. And I think that there will be pushback and efforts to water down and dilute the power of the prosecutorial service. I want to give you credit where credit is due. I think you told us on this program sometime in the past year that that this fight, this political fight between Eduardo Cunha and former President Rousseff um, was like a game, a, a high-level game of chicken, and it turns out that both seem to be the losers. Uh, a good lesson not to play chicken, yes. So let's move on and talk about social welfare programs in, in Brazil. You mentioned that, that there are these social security reforms that have a very narrow window to get past. Uh, some folks thought that changing social welfare programs in, in Brazil was, was absolutely off limits, was absolutely radioactive, and, and uh, are, is this also part of why we see so many people in the streets in Sao Paulo? Well, I'm not certain about that. I mean, I think we need to be a little bit careful. That's, a, that's I think, part of the, the narrative that Rousseff, in her farewell speech, uh, actually threw out there. Um, but on the other hand, there is a grain of truth, and that's where it becomes, um, we need to have a little bit more nuance. I mean, the, the, the Temer administration has, has talked about putting forward two major reforms. One is Social Security reform. The other is a constitutional cap on spending. Neither of those would touch, for example, Bolsa Familia, the conditional cash transfer program. And I think that's because Bolsa Familia will be completely you know, radioactive, as you say, for politicians. If they were to touch this, it would start a firestorm that would be uh, perhaps all-consuming. Social security reform, though, is something that both the Cardozo administration and the Lula administration undertook. And there's nothing inherently regressive about undertaking uh, social security reform. And in fact, the way the system works in Brazil, it might even be a progressive reform if it were to uh, more fairly uh, address the pensions of the civil service, which is highly privileged by the current system, uh, or uh, in some way increase the fiscal solvency of the social security system. Coming up, more excerpts and outtakes for our anniversary fiesta 
including discussions on politics in Argentina and Santeria in Cuba. Stay with us. This is Tom Scared for The Borgen Project. Each year, nearly 2 million children die from preventable diseases. Each day, 30,000 people die from hunger. 500 each hour are children. The Borgen Project is turning this around. We need your help. To learn more, go to borgenproject.org. That's B-O-R-G-E-N project.org. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. This week, our anniversary with the favorite interviews of our audience. Here again, Eric Hirschberg of American University, this time on Argentina. The electorates had not moved radically further left in terms of policy preferences. Um, they had moved modestly further left, perhaps. But the main thing is they were rewarding um, good performance. They were rewarding economic growth, diminished unemployment, um, better social programs, um, and governments that provided those kept getting reelected. Now that economic growth is slowing, it's not a surprise that some of those groups are being, uh, some of those um, governments are being voted out of office. Um, this is going to be one of the big challenges for um, someone like um, Mauricio Macri, um, the center-right candidate who is now occupying the presidency in Argentina, because um, you know the, the public opinion polling says that the electorate remains comparatively statist rather than market-oriented, um, very committed to um, the kinds of employment promotion um, and, frankly, protectionist policies that the Kirchner administration had practiced. Um, and we'll have to see how uh, the new government navigates. We also heard from Chris Sabatini of Columbia University later in the year after President Barack Obama's trip to Argentina. Sabatini is also the editor of the website Latin America Goes Global. He joined us via Skype from New York City to talk about Argentina's president, Mauricio Macri. I was talking to a um, fellow faculty member the other day who's a former uh, central bank governor and, and president in um, Argentina, and we both agreed, like, why does Mauricio Macri even want this job? Um, because there are a couple things that are really stacked against him. For one thing, uh, as we noted, he doesn't have a huge mandate. It's about two percentage points, three percentage points. It's not huge. Second, um, despite the fact that the economy has been limping along for some time, there's not a sense of crisis in Argentina yet. So um, people don't feel, they don't have that sort of appetite or there isn't, isn't that cushion for drastic measures that would exist if the bottom had fallen out of the economy, say, as it did in 2001 or as it did in 1989. Um, and then third, he doesn't have much uh, in, in the Congress. He has only a few, his party only has a few seats in, in the Congress, in the Senate and in the, in the lower house. So he's going to have to implement a whole series of reforms to address the conditions that I mentioned. He's going to have to devalue the currency. He's, he's going to have to basically cut um, uh, spending, which will mean laying off a lot of people. Um, and he's probably going to have to reduce inflation, which will also have some effects. All of those are going to have um, really basically have a chilling effect on the economy. It may boost gr growth, but it will mean people's um, cost of living will increase as well as because of the devaluation, as well as the likelihood that they will, um, uh, my, my, many will lose their jobs. So it's going to be, you know, we'll see how, how his political skills are. I will say that he has two things very much in his favor. One is, is his group of technocrats. The Economist article talks about that, but I've been saying this for a long time. He has surrounded himself with, I'll be, I'll be honest, uh, some, of my, some of my friends, actually, people really well-trained technocrats who know their stuff, which is very different from the previous administration, the current administration, the Kirchner's, who were 
mostly political hacks. So he has that. The second is, I think he's going to be welcomed by the United States and the international community and will receive, I think, some benefits, um, including um, perhaps the allowance to settle an outstanding debt that the Kirchner's refused to accept, which will allow him to gain access to international capital markets again to basically boost uh, the, the country's reserves. So he'll have a few advantages, mostly sort of internationally, but politically, uh, the cards are very much stacked against him. And now, one of the most popular interviews of the past season, our discussion with Michael Atwood Mason, the director of the Smithsonian Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage. Mason spoke to us about the Feast of San Lazaro in Cuba, a feast day primarily for followers of Santeria. Here's part of our discussion via Skype from Washington, D.C. I would certainly say that Afro-Cuban religious traditions are the most prevalent forms of religious engagement and expression on the island at this point. Um, that would include Santeria, that would include Palomonte and Palomayombe, um, that would include certain expressions of uh, spiritism, but not all of them. But you, you have a, a world of interrelated and regularly interacting religious traditions, which do make up the traditions of the majority of people on the island. And, and the Feast of St. Lazarus is a moment where all of that spills out literally into the streets. And you have all of you have millions, sorry, you have thousands of people walking. You have thousands of people going to the town of Rincon uh, to to honor Saint Lazarus and or Babaluaye. Some of those people are Christian in a very strict way. Some of them are very fluid about it. Some of them are spiritists, but they have a they might have a misionero, a, a, a missionary spirit who was connected to Saint Lazarus, and so they go. Uh, to honor that spirit um, and connect to the deity that that spirit honored in its life. Uh, some of those people will be um, Palo Mayombe practitioners. Some of those people will be Santeros who practice um, Santeria. And, and all of that, some of those people will imagine themselves as all of those things. But what you get is this incredibly dynamic outpouring uh, of expression because for whatever reason this image and this story really resonates um, for for Cubans. As I said I think a significant part of that has to do with people valuing health. I think a part of it has to do with a history uh, that includes a significant amount of scarcity and I think it's also really important to think about the part of it, the actual movement of it. So people are walking long distances and um, there are stories about Babaluaye walking from the land of the Lukumi to the land of the Arara or the, the land of the Yoruba speaking people to the land of the Fon speaking people in, in West Africa. That, that, that journey that Babaluaye makes is a key part of his transformation in the stories about him. People are actually engaged in moving. I mean, even if you even if you don't walk, you're getting on a bus and going to the nearest town and, and they close the street five or seven kilometers out and you have to take a 
sometimes it's a bus, sometimes it's a horse-drawn cart that functions like a bus, uh, sometimes it's a BC taxi, but you have to go to the next stop and, and literally the street of the town of Rincon is closed for, for most of the 16th and 17th and you have to walk uh, almost without fail. This change that comes from, from moving, that image of transformation uh, is really deeply embedded in in Cuban experience and I think the the festival really resonates in in that way. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse this week. You can also find our program at the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot org. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, we're available in other locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. And now at Program Advisory, we hope you've enjoyed our anniversary fiesta because Latin Pulse will be going on an indefinite hiatus after this week. Recent personnel changes and support challenges no longer make it possible for us to produce the program weekly. We hope to resume programming later, but for now, we must say hasta luego. So, for associate producer Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions.